Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network. In the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Get driven. Stay driven. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bareback Facts. Today, we're going to be talking about the infamous Al Capone, known by many names, referred to as Scarface. Big boy, public enemy number one, and Big Al. Guys, this guy is the real deal. All right. So let's get right into it. One of the most influential and probably one of the most polarizing figures in American history. This guy is the Rolls Royce of criminals. He is the original bad boy. The fishes. Born January 17, 1899 in Brooklyn, New York to immigrant parents. He would attain fame during the Prohibition era as the co-founder and boss of the infamous Chicago outfit. And his seven-year reign as crime boss would end when he was 33 years old. But he would leave a trail of broken bodies and bloody streets in his wake. Born to Italian immigrants, he was considered a five-points gang member who became a bouncer in organized crime premises such as brothels, where he would spend the majority of his time in his youth. In his 20s, he moved to Chicago and became a bodyguard and trusted factotum for Johnny Torrio, a head of a criminal syndicate that Ill- illegally supplied alcohol and the forerunner of the Chicago outfit. But before we get into the evolution of this infamous and polarizing figure, let's talk a little bit about his early life. Let's get a feel for where this individual came from. Now, while Al Capone was known by many names and certainly was most commonly referred to as Al Capone or Mr. Capone to those who knew him. Again, he was born to Italian parents, Gabriel Capone and Teresa Capone, and under the name Alphonse Gabriel Capone. His father was a barber and his mother was a seamstress and both born in Angri, a town in the province of Salerno. He was born a man of very humble beginnings. His mother and father had nine children, Alphonse, Al Capone, Vincenzo Capone, who later changed his name to Richard Hart and became a prohibition agent in Homer, Nebraska, Raphael James Capone, a.k.a. Ralph Bottles Capone, who took charge of his brother's beverage industry, and Salvatore Frank Capone, as well as Ermina Capone, who died at the age of one, and Ermino John Capone, Albert Capone, Matthew Capone, and Mafalda Capone. Closely. With Al, as he grew older in his criminal empire, and Frank did so until his death in April, on April 1st of 1924. Ralph ran the bottling company, both illegal and legal early on, and was also the front man for the Chicago outfit for some time until he was in prison for tax evasion in 1932. 
The Capone family immigrated to the U.S. first imagining, or first immigrating, I should say, from Italy to Fiume, uh, Austria, Hungary. So they spent a little bit of time uh, abroad in 1893, traveling on a ship to the U.S. and finally settling at 95 Navy Street in the Navy Yard section of downtown Brooklyn, where Gabriel Capone worked at a nearby barber shop on 29 Park Avenue. When Al was 11, the Capone family would move to 38 Garfield Place in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and it was here that Al would first be exposed to the potential of wealth, booze, that the gangster lifestyle offered. Capone's early years of school showed promise as a student who's a very intelligent and articulate young man. Unfortunately for his instructors, he had a lot of trouble with rules. And as he attended a Catholic school, he found himself constantly at odds with authority figures due to the strict nature of their parochial school rules. His schooling would end at the age of 14 after he's for hitting a female teacher in the face for scolding him. From there, he worked at odd jobs around Brooklyn, including a candy store and a bowling alley, and it was during this time that Capone would be influenced by the young and up-and-coming gangster Johnny Torrio, who he came to regard as his closest friend, confidant, and mentor. Capone initially became involved with a small-time gang of the area that includes the Junior 40 Thieves and the Bowery Boys, all made famous, by the way, uh, by the film Gangs of New York, for those of you who haven't seen it. Yes, they are based on actual gangs. He joined the Brooklyn Rippers and then the, the powerful Five Points Gang based in Lower Manhattan. Now, it was during this time he was employed and mentored by a fellow racketeer, Frankie Yale, a bartender in a Coney Island dance hall and saloon called the Harvard Inn. He insulted a woman while working the door at the Brooklyn nightclub as a bouncer and was slashed by her brother, Frank Galluccio. These wounds led to the nickname that Capone loathed more than any other nickname that he ever received during his lifetime. It was a name that would follow Capone for the rest of his life, but one that very few people would ever say to his face and live. The nickname Scarface. Now, Yale insisted that Capone apologize to Galluccio, and Capone later hired him as a bodyguard. When he was photographed, Capone hid the scar, or attempted to hide the left scar, the side left, or left side of his face, pardon me, saying that the injuries were war wounds. But it was also during this time that Capone would earn another nickname, a more friendly one, as he was referred to as Snorky, a term for a sharp dresser by his closest friends. But still, the nickname Scarface would be one that followed him. Now, Capone would later marry at a young age, which was not unusual for the time. He would marry May Josephine Coughlin at the age of 19 on December 30th, 1918. She was a young Irish Catholic girl, and earlier that month had given birth to their son, Albert Francis Sonny Capone. Now, Capone at the time was under the age of 21, and his parents had to consent in writing to the marriage, leading to a little bit of strife between the two families. At the 
At the age of 20, Capone left New York for Chicago at the invitation of his old friend and mentor, Johnny Torrio, who was imported by crime boss James Big Jim Colissimo as an enforcer. Now, Capone began in Chicago as a bouncer in a brothel, where he spent a great deal of time with the ladies. It was during this time that Capone would unknowingly contract syphilis. Uh, And, of course, this would be something that would cause a lot of problems for him later on in his life. Now, timely use of of, of salivarsin probably could have cured the infection he had received, but he apparently never sought treatment uh, for his, his syphilis. In 1923, Al Capone purchased a small house at seven. 244 South Prairie Avenue in the Park Manor neighborhood on the city's south side for a U.S. south side and at the time his home cost $5,500 so it's, it's actually a pretty impressive amount that he spent on that house particularly for the 20s and it's quite expensive. Early years of the decade Capone's name began appearing in newspaper sports pages where he was described as a boxing promoter He was a man of many parts, a man who had his hand in just about everything. His influence at this time had begun to spread rapidly as he rose through the ranks in the Chicago outfit. Chicago's location on Lake Michigan gave access to a vast inland territory, and it was well served by railroads. When Johnny Torrio took over Colissimo's crime empire after Colissimo's murder on May 11, 1920, in which Capone was suspected of being involved, he already very vast and rapidly growing empire. But he also had access to the Canadian bootlegging route that was running through the entire Midwest. Torrio headed an essentially Italian organized crime group that was the biggest in the city, with Capone as his right-hand man. He was wary of being drawn into gang wars, and he tried to negotiate agreements over territory between rival crime groups. The smaller, smaller mixed ethnicity Northside gangland, led by Dean O'Banion, also known as Dion O'Banion, came under pressure from the Guetta brothers, who were allied with Torrio. O'Banion found out for all of Torrio's pretensions to be a settler of disputes, he was unhelpful with the encroachment of the Guinness into the north side. In a fateful step, Torrio either arranged for or acquiesced to the murder of O'Banion later on. At the latter's flower shop in October of 1924, this placed this place, Jaime Weiss at the head of the gang, backed by Vincent Drucci, and of course, a man who... Capone would be forever linked to Moran. Weiss had been a close friend of O'Banion, and the Northsiders treated revenge on his killers as the top priority. This was just the beginning of what would become one of the most brutal, bloody, and violent periods in American history. It was in January of 1925 that Capone was ambushed, leaving him shaken but unhurt. And 12 days later, as Torrio was returning from a shopping trip, he would be shot several times. After recovering, 
Vittorio had decided that this lifestyle was no longer for him, that he was not going to be able to survive as a crime boss anymore, and he effectively resigned, handing control of the entire criminal empire to Capone. At the age of 26, Al Capone became the new boss of an organization that took in illegal breweries and a transportation network that reached all the way to Canada with political and law enforcement protection. In turn, he was able to use more violence to increase revenue to its highest peaks, gain more influence than his predecessors had ever gained. Refusal by an establishment to purchase liquor from him often resulted in the premises being either blown up, the owner either being shot to death, or the business itself mysteriously closing. As many as 100 people were killed in such bombings during the 1920s, and rivals saw Capone as responsible for the proliferation of brothels in the city. Capone was known as not only a heavy drinker and a man who really enjoyed the brothels himself, but he indulged in custom suits, cigars, gourmet food, And he never lacked for female companionship or his premier preferred liquor, Templeton Rye. He was particularly known for his flamboyance and costly jewelry. He was often decked out. And his favorite responses to questions about his activities by the press and by law enforcement officials were, I am just a businessman giving the people what they want. All I do is satisfy a public demand. During this period of the 20s, Capone became a national celebrity and talking point. People began to join one of two camps, the people who wanted Capone gone and the people who couldn't help but admire all that Capone was accomplishing and wanted a piece of it. Now, Capone based himself in Cicero after using bribery and widespread intimidation to take over during elections for the town council. And this would make it very difficult for his rivals, the Northside Gang, to target him. Shortly after taking over the, the town council, Capone's personal driver was found tortured and murdered, and there was another attempt on Weiss's life in the Chicago Loop. Now, on September 20th of 1926, the Northside gang used a ploy outside the Capone headquarters at the Hawthorne Inn aimed at drawing him to the windows. Gunmen in several cars then opened fire with the infamous Thompson submachine guns and shotguns at the windows of the first floor restaurant. Capone would be unhurt but shaken and would call for a truce, but the negotiations would fall through. Three, three weeks later, however, his rival Weiss was killed outside the former O'Banion flower shop in the Northside headquarters. And in 1927, the Hawthorne's restaurant owner, a friend of Capone's, and brutally tortured to death by Bugs Moran and his companion, Andrew Drucci. As a result of this, Capone began to become increasingly security-minded and desirous of getting away from Chicago. 
As a precaution, he and his entourage would often show up suddenly at one of Chicago's train depots and buy up an entire Pullman sleeper car on a night train to a place like Cleveland or Omaha or Kansas City, Little Rock or Hot Springs, where they would spend a week in luxury hotel suites under assumed names. So paranoid was he of his rivals, Capone began spontaneously leaving town. In 1928, Capone would pay $40,000 to beer magnate August Bush for a 14-room retreat at 93 Palm Avenue on Palm Island, Gang Bay between Miami and Miami Beach. Capone would never register any property under his name, and he didn't even have a bank account, but he always used Western Union for cash delivery, but no more, but, but never in installments bigger than $1,000 at a time. During his tenure as the head of a massive criminal organization, Capone would make various enemies, but he would also make a lot of political alliances. The protagonists of Chicago's politics had long been associated with questionable methods to this point, and even newspaper circulation wars, but the need for bootleggers to have protection in City Hall introduced a far more serious level of violence and graft. Capone is generally seen by historians as having an an appreciable effect in bringing about the victories of Republican William Hale Thompson, especially in the 1927 mayoral race when Thompson campaigned for a wide open town at one time, hinting that he'd reopen illegal saloons. Inflammation helped his campaign gain the support of Capone, and he allegedly accepted a contribution of $250,000 for Capone, which is ridiculous amount of money for this time. I mean, this this would be millions and millions of dollars now. In the 1927 mayoral race, Thompson would beat William Emmett Dever by a relatively slim margin, but certainly not without Capone's help. Thompson's powerful Cook County political machine had drawn on the often parochial Italian community, but this was in tension with his highly, his highly successful courting of African Americans. Capone would continue to back Thompson. Voting booths were targeted by Capone's brother, by his bomber, uh, James Bell Castro, in the wards where Thompson's opponents were thought to have support. And on the polling day of April 10, 1928, in the so-called pineapple primary, accused of the murder of a lawyer named Octavius Grenady, an African-American lawyer who and young politician who challenged Thompson's candidate for the African-American vote and was chased through the streets on polling day by cars of gunmen before being shot to death. Four policemen were among those charged, along with Bel Castro, but all charges were dropped after key witnesses recanted their statements, suddenly unable to recall what they had seen on that fateful day. An indication of the attitude of law enforcement to Capone's organization came in 1931 when Bel Castro was wounded in a shooting. Police suggested to skeptical journalists that Bel Castro was an independent operator. This would culminate the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This blatant allowance of violence in the streets would all culminate into the, one of the most violent, shocking, and brutal days in American history. 
think Valentine's Day Massacre has been covered in film. It's been covered uh, in many books. And Capone will forever be tied to it. Now, Capone was widely assumed to be responsible for ordering the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre in an attempt to kill Bugsy Moran, the head of the Northside Gang. And Moran would be the last survivor of the main Northside gunman. His secession had come about because his similarly aggressive predecessors, Vincent Drucci, Jaime Weiss, had been killed in the violent exchanges between the two gangs that had followed the murder of their original leader, Dino Banyan. To monitor the target's habits and movements, Capone's men had rented an apartment across from the trucking warehouse and garage at 2122 North Clark Street that served as Moran's headquarters at the time. On the morning of Thursday, February 14, 1929, Capone's lookout signaled gunmen disguised as police to start a raid. These fake police lined the seven victims that were to be made an example of along a wall without any struggle. They then signaled for accomplices with machine guns to enter the room. And in broad daylight, the seven victims would be brutally machine gunned and shotgunned to death, leaving massive pools of blood and chunks of flesh to line the area bullet holes riddling the walls. Photos of the victims were so shocking to the public that they irreparably damaged Capone's reputation. Within days, Capone received a summons to testify before a Chicago grand jury on the violations of the federal prohibition law, but he claimed to be too unwell to attend. And when asked about his involvement with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, he cited that he was on vacation in his Palm Avenue estate and couldn't possibly have known anything about it. On March 27th of 1929, Al Capone would be arrested by FBI agents as he left the Chicago courtroom after testifying to a grand jury that he was, that was investigating violations of federal prohibition laws. He was charged with contempt of court for feigning illness, illness to avoid a, an earlier appearance. In May of the same year, Capone would be sentenced to a prison term in Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary, and he was convicted within 16 hours of being arrested for carrying a gun during a trip there. A week after his release, in March 1930, Capone was listed as number one Public Enemy Crime Commission's widely publicized list. In April of the same year, Capone would be arrested again on vagrancy charges when visiting Miami Beach. The governor had ordered sheriffs to run him out of the state. Capone claimed that Miami police had refused him food and water and threatened to arrest his family, and he was charged with perjury for making these statements, but was acquitted after a three-day trial in July of that same year. In September, a Chicago judge issued a warrant for his arrest on the charges of vagrancy and then used the publicity to run against Thompson in the Republican primary. And as we all know, Thompson was Capone's chosen man. This is all a massive power grab, right, to usurp Capone's throne. 
February of 1931, Capone was again tried on the contempt on contempt of court. In court, Judge James Herbert Wilkerson intervened to reinforce questioning of Capone's doctor by the prosecutor, and Wilkerson sentenced Capone to six months, but he remained free while on appeal of the contempt conviction. Now, if we backtrack, it was the year ni- in the year 1927 that the Supreme Court ruled that illegally earned income was subject to income tax. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. rejected the argument that the Fifth Amendment protected criminals from reporting illegal income. Seems like a kind of a massive oversight on our part. We probably should have been charging criminals more money uh, to run their illegal businesses or just not letting them do it at all. The IRS Special Investigation Unit chose Frank J. Wilson to investigate Capone with the focus on his spending. The key to Capone's conviction on tax charges was proving his income, and the most valuable evidence in that regard originated in his offer to pay tax. Ralph, his brother and a gangster in his own right, was tried for tax evasion in 1930, and he spent the next three years in prison after being convicted in a two-week trial over which Wilkerson presided. Capone ordered his lawyers to regularize his tax position. Crucially, during the ultimately abortive negotiations that followed, his lawyer stated the income that Capone was willing to pay tax on um, for various years, admitting to an income of $100,000 for 1928 and 1929. For instance, uh, hence, without any investigation, the government had been given a letter from a lawyer acting for Capone conceding his large taxable income for certain years. In 1931, Capone was charged with income tax evasion as well as various violations of the Volstead Act, which is the Prohibition Act, giving Capone a a couple of years, but Judge Wilkerson had been aware of the deal all along and refused to allow Capone to plead guilty for a reduced sentence. On the second day of his trial, Wilkerson overruled objections that a lawyer could not confess for his client, saying that anyone making a statement to the government did so at his own risk. Uh, He also deemed that the 1930 letter to federal authorities could be admitted into evidence from a lawyer acting for Capone. Much was later made of the evidence, such as witnesses and ledgers, but these strongly implied Capone's control rather than stating it. The ledgers were inadmissible on the grounds of statute of limitations, but Capone's lawyers incompetently failed to make the necessary timely objection. They also ran a basically irrelevant defense of gambling losses, and Judge Wilkerson allowed Capone's spending to be presented at very great length. There's no doubt Capone spent of money, but, ele- but legally speaking, the case against him centered on the size of his income. Capone was convicted on October 17th and was sentenced to a week, uh, sentenced a week later to 11 years in a federal prison. He would be fined $50,000 plus $7,692 for court costs and was held liable for $215,000 plus interest due on his back taxes. The contempt of the court sentence was served concurrently and new lawyers hired to represent Capone were Washington-based tax experts. They would file a writ of habeas corpus based on Supreme Court ruling that tax evasion was not fraud, which apparently meant Capone had been convicted on charges relating to years that were actually outside the time limit for prosecution. Uh, however, a judge interpreted the law so that the time Capone had spent in Miami was subtracted from the age of, offense, of the offenses, thereby denying the appeal of both Capone's conviction and sentence. 
for all the phone did in his life, all the people he had murdered, all the gun running he did, all the illegal moving of illicit substances throughout Chicago, throughout the Midwest of the United States, all the intimidation, all the buying of public offices that he did, it was on tax evasion that Capone would get caught. They could never tie Capone to any of the other crimes he committed, despite the fact that he flamboyantly presented himself as a man with a great amount of power and influence. They could never tie him specifically to these crimes. While it was suspected and people knew that he was involved in many of these illicit activities, in the court of law, it was only tax evasion that they were able to get Capone on. Now, Capone would be sent to the Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in 1932 of May at the age of 33. And upon his arrival at Atlanta, the 250-pound the Capone was officially diagnosed with both syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also suffering from withdrawal symptoms from cocaine addiction, the use of which had perforated his sep- uh, and Capone was competent at his prison job of stitching soles on shoes for eight hours a day, but his letters were barely coherent. He was seen as a weak personality and so out of his depth dealing with bullying fellow inmates that his cellmate, seasoned convict Red Rudinsky, feared that Capone would have a breakdown. Rudinsky himself was a former small-time criminal associated with the Capone gang and found himself becoming Capone's protector whilst in jail. The conspicuous protection of Rudinsky and other prisoners drew accusations from less friendly inmates and fueled suspicion that Capone was receiving special treatment. Though no solid evidence ever emerged, but it, were, but it formed part of the rationale for moving Capone to the recently opened Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary off the coast of San Francisco. And on June 23rd, Capone would be stabbed and superficially wounded by another inmate named James C. Lucas over a perceived slight. At Alcatraz, Capone's decline became increasingly evident as neurosyphilis progressively eroded his mental faculties and gonorrhea ravaged his body. He spent the last year of his sentence in the prison hospital confused and disoriented, fevered, and a shell of the once powerful man he once was. He completed his term in Alcatraz on January 6th of 1939 and would later be transferred to the Federal Correctional Institution at Terminal Island in California to serve out his sentence for contempt of court and would be paroled November 16th, 1939. Now, the main effect, of course, of the Chicago incidents, particularly the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and, of course, the result of Capone's conviction was that he ceased to be boss immediately upon his imprisonment. But those involved in the jailing of Capone portrayed it as, a considerably, un- as considerably undermining the city's organized crime syndicate. Far from being smashed, the Chicago outfit continued without being troubled by the Chicago police, but at a lower level and without the open violence that had marked Capone's rule. Organized crime in the city had a lower profile once prohibition was repealed. And already a wary, wary of attention after seeing Capone's notoriety bring him down, 
to the extent that there is a lack of consensus among writers about who was actually in control of the gang following Capone's fall from grace and who was a figurehead front boss. Prostitution, labor union racketeering, and gambling became moneymakers for organized crime in the city without incurring serious investigation. And in the late 1950s, FBI agents discovered an organization led by Capone's former lieutenants reigning supreme over the Chicago underworld. They would engage for the years, for, for many years, until they finally managed to bring the majority of it down. Now, after Capone was released from prison, he was referred to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for the treatment of paresis uh, caused by late-stage syphilis. And if you don't know what paresis is, it's also known as the general paralysis of the insane or paralytic dementia. It's a severe neuropsychiatric disorder classified as an organic mental disorder and caused by meningitis and and syphilis, uh, and it leads to cerebral atrophy in the late stages of syphilis. Uh, So at this point in his life, Capone had reached his lowest point. Capone was grateful uh, for the compassionate care he would receive um, at the hospital. But Hopkins Hospital refused to solely on his reputation. Union Memorial Hospital, however, would later accept him, and Capone would express his gratitude Uh, and donate two Japanese weeping cherry trees to the Union Memorial Hospital in 1939. A very sickly Capone left Baltimore on March 20th of 1940 after a few weeks inpatient and a few weeks outpatient for Palm Island, Florida, resigning himself to an end. In 1946, his physician and a Baltimore psychiatrist performed examinations and conclude, concluded that Capone now had the mentality of a 12-year-old boy. So eroded was his mind at this point in his life, he could only articulate the simplest of thoughts and commands. Capone would spend the last years of his life at his mansion in Palm Island, Florida, and on 1929, And in the year 1947, January 21st, Capone would have a stroke. He'd regain consciousness and start to improve, but would later contract pneumonia and eventually suffer cardiac arrest on January 22nd. After another another session of being uh, hospitalized as a result of his health complications, on January 25th, Al Capone would die in his home, surrounded by his family, and would later be buried at Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. Leaving behind a legacy that has yet to be eclipsed. Uh, A great number of people were suspected of being killed as a consequence of Al Capone's orders and actions. Now, according to one guy, Murchie Jr., from the Chicago Daily Tribune, 33 people died as a consequence of Al Capone, although many suspect that the number was much higher.
Al Capone, not just in the crime world, but also in the realm of literature and film. He's been the topic of many books, many films. He's featured in a segment of uh, Mario Cuso's The Godfather as an ally of New York mob boss Salvatore, Salvatore Melanzano, in which he sends two button men at the mob boss's request to kill Don Vito Corleone. He appears in the comic book Tintin in America as one of the only two real-life characters in the entire The Adventures of Tintin series. A reincarnated Capone is a major character in the science fiction author P- Peter F. Hamilton's Night Dawn, Night Dawn trilogy. He is the inspiration for the central character of Tony Camonte in Amantage Trail's novel Scarface, which was uh, adapted to the 1932 film Scarface. The novel, of course, was later adapted again in 1983 with uh, the central character of Tony Montana, of course. Uh, one Jack Bilbo claimed to have been a bodyguard for Capone in his book, Carrying a Gun for Al Capone. And he is mentioned and met by the main character, Moose, in the book, Al Capone Does My Shirts. Capone has been portrayed on screen by many famous actors. He was portrayed by Rod, Rod Steiger in, Al Capone, in the film Al Capone in 1959. Uh, he was portrayed by Neville Brand in the TV series The Untouchables, and again in the movie The George Raft Story in 1961. Uh, he is portrayed by Jose Calvo in Doom Mafiosi, Contro Al Capone. Of course, Jason Robards in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre film from 1967. He's also portrayed by Robert De Niro in The Untouchables in 1987. Eric Roberts in The Lost Capone of 1990. And the list goes on. Portrayed by William Forsyth in The Untouchables of 1993 to 1991. Cameron Gary in Timeless. Isaac Keegan in Legends of Tomorrow, and Stephen Graham in Boardwalk Empire. He's been played by a great number of famous actors. Of course, obviously, infamously portrayed by Al Pacino and Dick Tracy, 1990. But ultimately, we can glean that sometimes crime really does pay, but sometimes, sometimes it pays in the cruelest of ways. Capone spent much of his life on top of the world. After taking over this massive criminal organization, Capone reached a height of celebrity that stars during this period would have killed to have. Everybody knew Al. Everybody wanted to be him. People couldn't help but envy him. He was the toast of the town. His reputation only damaged by the brutal murder of seven men in broad daylight. For years, Capone ran an underworld empire whose rival is yet to be seen. He was a man that carried himself with a great deal of arrogance and swagger. 
and a man who's rapid lifestyle, his largesse, and his arrogance bring about his downfall. Now, Capone's influence cannot be overstated, especially in the realm of Hollywood. But his influence on the criminal world valued and underappreciated by historians. Every gangster that came after Capone wanted to be him. Every gangster, every crime boss, and every every wannabe crime boss wanted to be Capone. All the gangsters that come after Capone modeled themselves after him. And they modeled themselves after movies about him. And so the lasting legacy of Capone is that he becomes ideal of what a gangster looks like, what a gangster should like, look like, and really how one rules an empire. And while Capone may have been ultimately claimed by his fast living lifestyle, by his overconsumption of cocaine and liquor and women. Capone leaves behind some very valuable lessons for us to take into account. The first of which is the devil always gets his due. Much of his life amassing enormous fortune, spending more money than many people during his life ever made. He would make more money some years than many of us will ever make our entire lives. A man who could literally say the world was his oyster. But because of his Inability to look past his desires, his his inability to look past temporary pleasures, Capone would find himself unable to enjoy the fruits of all of his labor. He would find himself mad as a hatter and sick as a dog in his later years. And while he may have died in a luxurious mansion, he was in no mental state as a result of his inability to make good choices. He was in no mental state to enjoy it. His obsession with fame and and maintaining an air of charisma rather than taking care of himself arrogance and his inability to see the eventualities that would result as a consequence of his poor choices left him not only unable to enjoy 
all of the fruits of his labor been bedridden in a shell of the man that we'd all come to fear and respect. Capone will forever be a fixture in American history as the original gangster, the original criminal mastermind, and the original public enemy number one. But more than that, he'll forever be an example of what happens when we try to live too fast and what happens when we get too greedy. So those of you interested in reading a little bit more about this fascinating individual and his contribution uh, and, you know, to history, as well as uh, the era of prohibition, which is a fascinating period of history, I would recommend reading the following. Uh, you might take a look at William J. Helmer's Al Capone and His American Boys, Memoirs of a Mobster's Wife, uh, printed out of Indiana University's Press. Uh, also take a look at Dennis E. Hoffman's Scarface, Al and the Crime Crusaders, Chicago's Private War Against Capone from Southern Illinois University Press. Uh, both of those are fascinating studies. You might take a look at Fred D. Paisley's Al Capone, The Biography of a Self-Made Man. And uh, last but not least, Alan McDonald's Dead Famous Al Capone and His Gang. All of these books will point you in the right direction into this very um, tumultuous time in American history. The period of prohibition is such a fascinating time. The United States was in such a state of flux during this time, and characters such as Capone not only terrified the people, the American people, but they also inspired the American people. The celebrity of these individuals not only made them icons in American history, but to some they were, they were almost American heroes, polarizing figures who blinded the American public with wealth and glamour and never again are we likely to see criminals become kings and celebrities. I'm Dallas Duclo. This has been the Bareback Facts. Guys, enjoyed the show. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I will be back next week with something hopefully you will all enjoy just as much as I've enjoyed talking to you all today. Thanks for tuning in as always. And we will see you guys next time. All the bareback facts. <laughs>